Well, good morning. We are in Ezra chapter 5. Ezra 5. Last week, some of y'all left here discouraged, and rightly so. It's a tough chapter. The adversaries that opposed the building of the temple, and the Jews just quit building. They were discouraged. There's an old story. It's not true. You won't find it in the Bible, but there's a legend that the devil had a garage sale. He marked all the tools with his price, hatred, deceit, lust, pride, pastor who, who uh, told the story is interesting. Uh, one of the commentators, he writes, apart from these tools was a harmless looking but well-used tool with a much higher price. A buyer pointed it out and asked, what's that tool? Discouragement, the devil replied. Why is the price so high, the man asked. He responded, because it is more useful to me than the others. I can pry open a man's heart with that when I can't get near to him with other tools. Once inside, I can make him do whatever I choose. It's badly worn because I use it on almost everyone, but few know that it belongs to me. Why do we get so discouraged? I mean, when you consider this, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, your eternity is secure This life is not hell, but it's the worst sort of quote-unquote hell you'll ever endure. This is the worst it's ever going to get for eternity. Your sins are forgiven. You're righteous in the sight of God, even though you still sin every day. And you know that even the plans that you have are really not your own. It's the Lord, and he's working these things out for your glory. His glory, you're good. Why do we ever get discouraged? Well, we do. Life doesn't go our way. Our plans get shut down. Dreams die. Some of us realize at a particular time that I don't have the years in me to get done with what I want to do. If only I could go back. As a matter of fact, just as a side note, I think that's why there's so many of those movies out there. A person goes back in time and fixes those things. But we're not sovereign, though we try to be. So what do you do when discouragement comes? Well, you try to find comfort. Even though the Holy Spirit is called the comforter, we try to find oftentimes comfort outside of Christ. We find it in sin. We go back to the play box of sin. Sometimes it's not quote unquote sin, it's other things. You see, even God's good gifts can become sinful when they become substitutes for the Lord. Really good goods, as one person said, one really good goods can become bad gods. Good things like family, like career, like even some good entertainment. Any of you ever been caught living through your kids? That's idolatry as well. And oftentimes we do it because we just, our plans have not worked out. And we get depressed And then we fall away from the kind of living we should do as believers. Great commandment, great commission living. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving your neighbors yourself. And then great commission, making disciples. That's what it's about. But we're discouraged. So we stop. And ultimately what we end up doing is escaping. 
And we do it by many means and many methods. I think of a prophet who did this in the Old Testament. First Kings 19, he says to God, it is enough. That's Elijah. In 1 Kings 18, he was at the high point of his career, if you will. He, was, he had taken on the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel and defeated them. It wasn't he who did it. It came fire from heaven that the Lord sent and consumed his sacrifice. And whereas the prophets of Baal had cut themselves, <laughs> and Elijah's even mocking them, you know the story. But at the very end of that, I get the idea, Elijah perhaps thought repentance was coming nationwide repentance because they killed the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. And then Elijah goes up and he prays for rain. There had not been rain for years, three and a half years, and then rain fell. But before it happened, Elijah decided to do a little running race with Ahab, Ahab in his chariot, Elijah in his robe, and he beats him there miraculously. I mean, Elijah's Best day ever. <laughs> Only to find out, he gets word from Jezebel. And she says, may the gods do so to me, and more also, if you are not just like those prophets that you just killed. And you know, you would think, he's seen God do all these things. He would be like, I ain't scared of you. But what does the scripture tell us? He was afraid and he ran. He ran to the bottom city of Judah, which was Beersheba, and then what does God do? Does he strike him dead? No, he doesn't. What happens is that an angel comes to him and gives him food and water and tells him and sends him back off to sleep a couple of different times. But then Elijah takes off and goes further south to Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai, where the commandments first came to Israel. We don't know exactly why he chose that place. He may have questioned everything. We don't know. And he tells God at that point, it is enough, Lord, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And what does God tell him when he reaches that spot? What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Not only perhaps in his discouragement, but in his location. This is not the nation of Israel. You should be back doing your work. And Elijah tells him, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword, and I alone am left. Stop. That's not true. Elijah just found out like a few days or weeks beforehand that Obadiah was hiding 100 prophets in two different caves. He knows it's not the case. Why do I point that out? Because folks, when we get discouraged, we believe lies instead of God's word. Continuing on, they seek my life to take it away. And you know what's interesting? God does not let Elijah off the hook. He doesn't say, okay, well, let's bring you home now. Let's get the chariots. No, he gets him back to work, which is exactly what we should be doing when we fall prey into discouragement. And it's not work, I'm, I'm not referring to your job, but working for the Lord, ultimately, no matter what job we have. And one last thing he tells Elijah, you need to read it, especially if you're feeling discouraged today, 1 Kings 19. He says, by the way, it's almost like he says as an aside, we have 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
And that's, that's the way the chapter ends. So Elijah goes back to work. So I say all that to note this. The people, they fell prey to Samaritan imita- uh, into intimidation, and they're scared, and they're discouraged for 16 years. 16 years. They should have persevered because they had Cyrus's support. They had the money, but they got discouraged. And what they needed to hear they needed to hear that, well, God's in charge and he's got you. And they needed to hear God's word. Psalm 119.50 puts it this way. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Let me tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't bank your life on the promises of God, are you a believer? This is like step one. What promises gives me life? Well, Romans 8, 28 is one that we know that all things, yea, even my own sin, work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You can breathe today when you hear that. There's so many promises of God. And so what God is gonna do is he's gonna send a couple of prophets to give them his word. And what's gonna happen is they're gonna be back in the saddle again. We're gonna take a look at it. Chapter five Verse one and two, when the prophets Haggai, the prophet uh, and Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them, note that. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God who were with them supported them. So, What's happening? God has sent these two prophets and they're gonna prophesy to the Jews. What's gonna happen is they're gonna preach the word of God. That's on one side. And what are the people gonna do? They're gonna allow the word to confront their situation. Vitally important, folks. You allow the word of God to confront whatever situation you may find yourself in. Where do you get that in, Jeff? Well, number one, you get that in scripture. Number two, we see even Jesus Christ, the Messiah, son of God, uses the word of God as he fights the temptations of Satan. We see this as he's called out into the wilderness. The spirit drives him to the wilderness and then Satan messes with his hunger and he says, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And what does Jesus do? He quotes the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 8, man shall not live by bread alone. When Satan messes with his safety in saying something to the effect, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And Satan does something even really wicked. He quotes scripture, but only part of it to make his case. Be careful. Satan can do that in your life as well. He will say, hey, even the angels basically will protect you. They will keep you from you hitting your foot against a stone. And Jesus quotes the scriptures. Deuteronomy 6 You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then finally, in the area of worship, he says, uh, Satan says to Jesus, all these things, he shows him the kingdoms of the world. He goes, all these things I give you, just bow down and worship me. And it seems to be some sort of indicator that if you just bow down to me, perhaps you won't have to go to the cross. That's what many theologians think. They, They might be right. And yet Jesus quotes the scripture again. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy Six, why am I telling you all this? It's because folks, you and I have to stop living off 
the, um, the faulty waters of this world. We have the milk of the word of God. This is what we need to be drinking. This is the thing, is the only thing that gives us life. The word works. It works. Isaiah 55, 10, 11, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is what? My word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So God sends two prophets and they're gonna give them the word. And we have it up there in the notes. We have Haggai. Haggai, he gives four messages over four months. I don't know what happens. Maybe he takes an early retirement and he's done, four months. Here's what happens. Uh, he gives them to the exiles in 520 B.C., in the verse, chapter one, verse two through 11, he basically looks at the exiles and he gives them a, a report card and said, y'all have made three Fs, three of them. And here they are. Number one, you have forsaken. You have forsaken the Lord by giving in to your own comfort and desires. What had they done wrong? Listen, folks, by this time, they were now paneling their houses they were adding some nice wood panel to their houses where the temple stood in ruins. It was just a foundation. They forsaken the Lord. They didn't put him first, put themselves first. Number two, they have feared, feared the world, not the Lord. Feared the world, not the Lord. In essence, they're not learning from the Lord's discipline. The Lord has sent them financial problems. The economy is a mess. And so that's why we have that dollar sign there. It's because it's, it's not working. And secondly, he gives them crop failure. What is he trying to do? He's trying to get their attention and they're not getting it. Why? Because they're fearing the world. They won't go back to building the temple instead of fearing the Lord. And number three, they have forgotten that the Lord is with you. You see, the Lord is not in some sense, yes, of course, he's omniscient, but he's not with the Persian king. He's with you. Some of us are so scared of the world. And what is the world going to think of us? And I go, the Lord is not with the world. He's with you. You're his people. So in a special way, of course, he's with you. He's your dad. You can count on him. That's what Haggai says. Zechariah, he's a little different. Haggai's kind of a punch in the throat sort of guy. He's hard driving by God's grace, he uses this guy. And then he uses Zechariah. Zechariah is more of the, he, he, he comforts them. He preaches two years. He gives them hope. The point being that God keeps his word. He keeps his promises. Some of them he's going to give them. So y'all keep his kingdom first. And so he tells them in chapter one of verse three, he says, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Now, what's interesting about Zechariah is his name. Uh, when you take a look at verse one, Zechariah, the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. So he's listing his dad and his grandpa, but their names all mean something. And I think the Lord is showing us something by the spirit who wrote the book. Zechariah means the Lord remembers. His dad is Berechiah, meaning the Lord blesses. And his grandpa's name is Edo, meaning at the appointed time. You put those together, the Lord remembers, 
the Lord blesses at the appointed time. So your focus, folks, is to be on the Lord. Savvy? Now, there's a great reminder in verse one that I don't want to miss. It says, the God of Israel who was over them. He's over them. So you can take this in one of two ways, and perhaps the, the Jews were meant to take it both. First, they could take it in a very serious way. And we need to remember this, folks. The Lord is over you today. He, he's in charge. Romans 14, 12, each of us will give account of himself to God, even though we are saved by grace through faith alone. One day God may say, tell me about your life. So there's a very seriousness about the Christian life. And yet also we have a very encouraging sense. The Lord is over you. In the Hebrew, it can also mean he is among you. He, he has got you covered. Deuteronomy 31.8, we can hear the Lord himself is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Do not fear and be dismayed. Why? Because the Lord's over you. He's camping above you. He's right here. Even though when you feel so far from him, he's not far away at all. He's right there. So verse three and four, they're encouraged. At that time, we've got a little conflict going on though. At that time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shether Bozani and their colleagues came to them and spoke to them thus. Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? Then we told them accordingly what the names of the men who were reconstructing this building. Well, who is Tatanai? Well, he's governor beyond the river. That was once again the area of Israel, Judah, Egypt. He's in charge. Uh, he's recorded in a Babylonian document from 502 BC. And then you've also got this fella, Shether Bozani. Uh, he, that was his secretary or scribe. And he's just asking them, who gave you a decree to rebuild this temple? Remember, folks, it's been 16 years. They didn't just, I mean, it's, it's been there a long time. And why are you rebuilding it? And by the way, Tatanai had good reason to ask this. In the Persian Empire, of which the Jews are now a part of, uh, the Persian Empire had gone through a political upheaval since Cyrus' death in 530 B.C., Cyrus, who commanded the temple to be rebuilt, was now dead for quite a few years. His son, Cambyses II, became king and was away in Egypt at the time. Cambyses, who is once again the emperor now, he received a report that someone had impersonated his brother and was taking over the government. How did Cambyses know that someone was impersonating his brother? Because he had assassinated his brother. <laughs> It's like, that can't be him. Well, he jumps back on his horse and headed to Persia, according to one of the historians, Herodotus, and the scabbard on his sword broke and the sword pierced his side just slightly. But the problem is, is gangrene set in and within three weeks he was dead. And so there arose a man named Darius. Some of you younger kids go, Darius, 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 I know that name, I know that. Yes, you do, from Daniel in the lion's den. This is King Darius. And he was anointed king of Persia in 522 after a civil war. So all that to say, that little history lesson, is to let you know Tat and I had good reason to question, what are y'all doing here? What's going on? And the second reason for Tat and I's concern, it was actually Zechariah's prophesying. Zechariah had said that 
quote unquote, the branch, the branch, the long expected descendant of David's line would soon appear and sit on David's throne. Well, he's looking at that going, well, it looks a whole lot like this, um, oh, Zerubbabel. Is this guy about to become king? Well, we know the rest of the story. Zerubbabel would not become king because Zechariah would also prophesy in chapter 9, verse 9, your king is coming to you. Humble, righteous, he's sitting on the colt of a donkey. Oh, yes. Speaking of Jesus Christ. So he had good reason to question. So I'll also say this before we go on to verse 5. Unlike the Samaritans, though, these men are not described as enemies of the Jews. I, I don't think they're attacking. I think they're just asking. They're not malicious. Tatanai actually will write a report in this, in this chapter that's actually accurate. He's not lying like the Samaritans were. And I would say for us, folks, uh, beware. Believers sometimes complain about being persecuted by others, and they're not. Sometimes it's not the state. Sometimes it's not our boss at work. And we are actually responsible for what we're going through. I'll never forget years ago, a friend of mine came to me and said, oh, I just, I just got fired. I was like, oh, that's awful. And she had said, yeah, I just, they were out to get me. I was like, really? Tell me about it. Well, you know, I showed up late all the time. And so, you know, they gave me one last chance and I said, okay, and then what happened? And she said, okay, I showed up late again and then they fired me. And I said, but, okay, never mind. Point, <laughs> point being is we need to watch for that. Uh, we don't want the persecution complex to be reminiscent of believers. I'm not saying we don't have enemies. And certainly, darkness hates light. And yet at the same time, Tatanai was not doing these people wrong. He's questioning. He had good reason. And as believers, we need to be aware of that, uh, that we don't want to suffer for doing wrong. First Peter writes that in two, uh, chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. It says, it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscience of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, that's commendable before God. So verse five, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews and they did not stop until a report could come to Darius. And then a written reply he returned concerning it. The eye of their God. Let me talk a little bit about this. Uh, this is sort of, there's a term called anthropomorphic language. Anthropology is Greek for the study of man. Anthropomorphic language is very helpful to know as a Christian because when you have things like the eye of God or the hand of God was upon them or the ear of God heard them, that's anthropomorphic language. That's referring something to God that he doesn't have. Remember, God is spirit. And in the Old Testament, there was no incarnation yet. So when we're referring to the eye of God, the ear of God, the hand of God, it's human language the Holy Spirit uses to show us a little bit more about God, that he actually hears us, that he actually takes care of us. And in this particular case, he's showing us that he will fulfill his purposes. The eye of God is upon them. And some of you real snarky folks might say, 
Isn't the eye of God always upon you? And, and certainly, yes, that's the case. But what I'm referring to in particular is God fulfilling his purpose for them. You see, one of the things you don't know is that in the Persian Empire, you had actually elected officials or selected by the king that was the eye of the king, the ear of the king. This is not new with Persia. This happened also in Egypt and Babylon as well. And what do you think their job was to do? Well, we use that same phrase, hey, you be my ears, you be my eyes. Don't we use that today? And it means these people were spies and they would hear things, they would see things, they would report it to the king. But what we see here is that God is omniscient. So we have in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, rather 2 Chronicles 16, 9, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So he's, I don't care about the eye of the king, the ear of the king, the eye of God is upon you. You're okay, you'll be fine. And he's fulfilling his purpose for them. Continuing on, no one can stop them from building. Why? But according to Job 36, seven, the Lord does not take his eyes off the righteous. He's got them. And the only reason they're righteous because God has given them his own righteousness. So we see here, no one could stop them from building. And I think sometimes we fail to note this, although God causes things to happen, what does he also do? He also causes things not to happen. Make sense? There's certain things he, doesn't, he just won't allow to have happen. Tatanai cannot stop their work. Why? Because the eye of God is upon them. He's accomplishing his work. Uh, the elders are not tempted to stop. They're gonna keep building. And so it's not always what God is doing for you. It's what God is sometimes could be keeping you from doing. Uh, think about this. When we're looking for another story about that, Genesis 20, verse 6, you have Abraham doing something so foolish again. He, he tells the people of the Philistines that, oh, this is my, what? Sister. And Abimelech said, oh, it's your sister. Well, I'll take her in to be part of my harem. Well, God appears to him in a dream that night, Abimelech, and says, in essence, you are a dead man. And Abimelech is somehow able to speak to him and perhaps in this dream, and he says, I, basically, I'm innocent, and I've not touched her. And God is so great in this. He says, I kept you from sinning against me. I did not allow you to touch her. So stop patting yourself on the back right here. We should remember that as well when the Lord protects us from falling into sin. They did not stop them until a report could come to Darius and then a written reply could be returned concerning it. And the point is, they needed to persevere. They needed to keep on trusting the Lord. The Lord is doing his work. We see here in verse uh, six through eight, we'll see that Tatanai writes to Darius. Now, before I tell you this, I have to give you a correction from last week. I told you, I think I've mentioned before a couple of times, Acts 17, 11. You need to make sure, be a good Berean, and whatever you hear from me or anybody else, go straight back to scripture. And so somebody told me last week, hey, just wanted to mention to you, I, I had said Greek was the official language of the Roman Empire. That's wrong. Latin is the official language. Greek was the lingua franca, which is the common language. I confess, please forgive me. As Moy says, please forgive me. 
Okay, continuing on, we have uh, much in the same way that although Persia was the official language, Aramaic was the common language, and so this is written in Aramaic. Verse six or eight, this is the copy of the letter which Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shether Bozani and his colleagues and the officials who were beyond the river sent to Darius the king. They sent a report to him in which it was written thus, to Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we have gone to the province of Judah to the house of the great God. And by the way, maybe they called it the great God because they're quoting the Jews right now. We don't know. Continuing on, which is being built with huge stones and beams are being laid in the walls. And this work is going on with great care and is succeeding in their hands. Once again, this is an accurate letter. It's accurate. So when it says they're being built with huge stones, that's not actually what it says. In the Aramaic, it says they're building with stones of rolling. Stones of rolling. What do you think that means? Well, there's certain stones that are so big, you have to roll them much in the same way that the Egyptians would build pyramids. They have kind of shown that's how they did it. They would, they would roll them, uh, perhaps with logs underneath. Uh, perhaps what they're saying is that these stones are too big to carry. And you may wonder, why do you need such large stones? Are you building a temple or are you building a fort? That's a question. So continuing on, they're saying, and they are succeeding in their hands. Even the pagans can say, God is fulfilling his plans. God sent prophets. He gave the people's ears to hear. He made the, the prophets support the work of the people. The elders led. The workers worked. This is the Lord. Verse 9 and 10. Then we asked those elders, continuing on in the letter, and said to them thus, who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish the structure? We also asked them their names so as to inform you and that we might write them down, write down the names of the men who were at their head. I just want to point out the last phrase there, at their head. Who are they referring to? They're referring to the guys in charge. If you will, they're referring to the elders of the people. And this is a good reminder for us to once again pray for your elders. They are shepherds but they are sheep as well. They don't ever stop being sheep when they become shepherds. And by the way, just to make a shameless plug for our adult Sunday school, great teaching is going on down there before this service. And if you get an opportunity, the elders are doing just a bang-up job of teaching through Mark. You need to come. And uh, the word of God is, is cherished. Verse 11 and 12 Thus they answered us saying, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago. As a matter of fact, 500 years ago to be exact, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. Here the elders are answering Five questions over the next few verses, and I think it's good just to camp at each one. They're answering these questions, and, and so they came to them, and the elders are answering, who are we? Who are we? And the first answer, we are servants of the God of heaven and earth. 
And there's two interpretations you can take to what the Jews are saying when they say we are the God of heaven and earth. What do they mean by that? Well, they could be being shrewd to Darius, the king of Persia. Because remember, Darius is a follower, follower of Ahura Mazda, which is the God of heaven. And so maybe they're kind of appealing to him, like, yeah, we, we worship the God of heaven. I don't think they're doing that at all, by the way. I think what they're doing is not being shrewd. I think they're being bold. And they're saying, we serve the God of heaven. What else? And earth. Huh? Anything about that? So it could be a challenge to the Persians' way of thinking. This is the real God who serves us, gives, uh, gives us daily bread. So I, what I see here is these Jews are not ashamed of who they are. We are servants. In much the same way, are we not the same? We are servants. Somebody comes to you and says, who do you think you are? We are servants of the God of heaven and earth. We are believers in Jesus Christ. Now, even when we say that, the world automatically wants to throw stones at us because of our past. In some sense, they have good reason to. We reckon that I would tell you we need to head them off at the pass if they begin to question about our past and say, we recognize the church's sins of the past, some most grievous. Listen, you look at the history books, the fact that we followed the world in embracing racism, what were we thinking? And beware, some of us might say, well, they weren't true believers. And I say, au contraire. You need to read the writings. Many of, their, many of them godly people and yet falling prey to worldly thinking. You see, at the end of the day, we know that the Lord is saving people. He's saving people from every sin. He's saving people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And y'all, we need to start stepping up now as we enter a really weird time in our country. We don't need to run from confrontation. We run towards it. Why? Because we want to give them the love of Christ. We want to give them the gospel. And that's the next point here. What are we doing? What are y'all doing is what they're looking at the temple builders. And they say, we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. How does that play into us as believers? Well, the sweet thing about it is that ultimately we're not building the temple. God is building his kingdom, whom he calls what? The temple, his body, the body of Christ. And he's using us to make disciples. Make disciples. That is the gospel. If I were to tell you today, what is the gospel? Let's go ahead and get some volunteers. Come on up here and give the gospel real quick. Well, some of you go, no, 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 I'd rather kill me than sit and talk to people. But suppose I said, do it privately. How would you do it? Would you do it? Would you go, I'm not comfortable with it. Folks, that's the thing that saved you for eternity. You need to, by God's grace, get comfortable with it. And Paul would use a different phrase and say, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek I got to see this the other day. Tara Vansell was able to talk to many people, uh, give them the gospel, talk to them about the importance of Jesus Christ. And I'm looking at my wife and I'm thinking, ah, that's impressive, okay. Now, the Bible says what? Don't sing your own praises, let another sing your praise. And so I get an opportunity to do that. 
Not all of us are given towards that public, but we're all given to make disciples. Amen? Amen. So what are we doing? I talk to people about Jesus Christ. And if some say, well, that's not my gift, it's, that's not an excuse. Jesus never says, if, if it's your gift, go out and make disciples. No, we all have the ability. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit in us. So it is possible. Number three, why are we in this predicament? And he says, because our fathers provoked, uh, rather our fathers provoked God of heaven to wrath. They're just laying it out there. We, we suffered for 70 years because the Lord was given to wrath. And for good reason, because of our fathers and what they did. Number four, how did it occur? He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple. They're making something very clear to the pagans. They're saying this temple was not destroyed because of God's weakness. No, no. To the contrary, this is God's judgment. And the prophet's messages were finally proven true. Isaiah and Jeremiah and so many of the other prophets had prophesied that we had better follow the Lord, and we didn't do it. Now, aren't you glad, believer, on this side of things that God's wrath is not against you? Why? Because it went against his son. Now, I'm not saying the Lord can never be displeased with our actions, of course. But the fact is, he always sees us through the lens of his son. Finally, number five, why are we rebuilding? King Cyrus decreed it. Take a look, verse 13 and 14. However, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. Also, the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, um, sorry, uh, also the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought them to the temple of Babylon. These King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had appointed governor. Now, I want you to note, Cyrus is called the king of Babylon. And if you're really a historical person, you go, wait, he's not king of Babylon, he's king of Persia. However, once he took over Babylon, he got the title, king of Babylon. Um, king Cyrus declared this temple to be rebuilt. Why is that so important for them to tell these people, for them to get word back to Darius? I'll tell you why. Because Darius had great respect for Cyrus. Cyrus was like George Washington, father of the nation. He had great respect for him, so he's going to listen to this. And by the way, there's evidence of that decree is what they're saying. We have the temple utensils. We have Sheshbazar, who is the official Persian uh, governor, and he's with us. Verse 15 and 16, he said to him, Take these utensils, go and deposit them in the temple of Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt in its place. Then that Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem and from them until now, it has been under construction and it is not yet completed. I just want to draw one aspect of that. Under construction, Jeff, I thought it stopped for 16 years. Well, it had in a concentrated way for 16 years. Perhaps you saw somebody from time to time scrub the foundation and go back to his house, but they hadn't built so much. And so they're saying, hey, this process is, construction has taken a little longer than we counted on. So we have finally verse 17. But before we do, I should mention this. 
I made this allusion earlier. I'm going to say it again. Are we not the temple of God? So 16 years, this temple was laid dormant. The point I'm trying to tell you is this. When you and I fall into sin or unrepentance, does God's building of us stop completely? No. What happens? The Lord sends his word to us. And we get word and we're like, what am I doing? This is wrong. And so we see 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, faithful is he who calls you and he will bring it to pass. The Lord has got you. He's got you taken care of. Even in your sin, he's going to use that sin to humble you. And so God will use it for his own glory. So interesting about the Lord is he doesn't waste anything. Doesn't waste anything. I'm not saying that you and I can't look back at our past and think that was such a waste. Why did, I, why did I stray so long? I'm not saying that we can't have regret and, and certainly repentance, but my, my point is, is if, if God really is causing all things to work together for good, it has to include your sin. How do you say that? Because he says all things. And so he's even gonna use this. Perhaps when they finally got the temple rebuilt, they would say, remember those 16 years? Yeah, it was a mess. But you know what? The Lord humbled us, and it was good for us. Finally, verse 17. Now, if it pleases the king, let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon. If it be that an issue was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild this house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send to us his decision concerning this matter. So what happens? They're going to wait to find out if they're going to actually receive a decree and so ultimately, there's nothing they can do. They're going to have to let the Jews keep working. They didn't have to do that. They could have stopped them, could have tried to stop them. And then I think we see here finally in verse 17 at the end of this chapter, what do we see? We see the kindness of God, his common grace. He's not going to step into the picture and reveal himself to Tatanai, but he's going to give Tatanai the common grace of just go, ah, just let him build. Right? It reminds me of another guy that God used common grace in his life, and that's Benjamin Franklin. He's a son, many of you don't, may not know this, he was a son of an evangelical family. His sister wrote him letters her whole life begging him to come to Christ. As far as we know, he never did. But he knew the gospel very well. In his autobiography, he writes about one of his really good friends, George Whitfield. George Whitfield is a believer, an evangelist. He preached the wrath of God and the saving work of Jesus Christ, and yet Ben Franklin liked him. Why did he like him? Because Ben Franklin was drawn to, he was impressed with his speaking ability. He even printed his sermons. He was impressed with his character, actually. Whitfield had founded an orphanage. He was collecting money for it when he would go to different places. Many thought Whitfield was just filling his own pockets, though. But Franklin would go out of his way to say, quote, he's a perfectly honest man. He's not doing that. Well, I'm here to show you a picture of the common grace in Ben Franklin's life and what he did. He writes a story. I happened soon afterwards to attend one of his sermons, he writes, in the course of which I perceived Whitfield intended to finish with a collection. And I silently resolved that he should get nothing from me. He liked him, but he didn't want to give him any money. 
I had in my pocket a handful of copper money, three or four silver dollars, and a five pistoles, which are Spanish gold. As Whitfield proceeded in his sermon, I began to soften and concluded to give the coppers. Another stroke of his oratory made me ashamed of that and, and determined me to give the silver. He finished so admirably that I emptied my pockets wholly into the collector's dish, gold and all. Now, just to be clear, a person is not saved by giving money to the kingdom of Christ. But I wanted to point out that the Lord in his common grace, he allows the rain to fall upon the righteous and the wicked. I conclude with this. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Some of us need to get back to working on that relationship that's broken. Some of us need to get back to really trying hard again in our marriages. Some of us need to get back to getting in the word and in prayer, realizing that this is what changes us, makes us more like Christ. But I would tell you, as even as you get back in the saddle again by God's grace, know that it wasn't you that got you there. The Lord used his word in your life, and he willed and worked for his good pleasure for you to be closer with him. You see, life is so short, so short. It's really too short to walk at a distance from your Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you are so kind to us that you continue to pull us back, pull us back in. We're always prone to wander as one of the songs goes. And so we pray that you would help us, that we would love you, that we would seek first your kingdom. We've got nothing to prove. We're on the team. We have the jersey. And so we pray that we would just be about doing the work of the Lord, knowing that all these things are working for our good and for your glory. And we pray for anybody in here who's not yet know Jesus is their Savior. Lord, would you grant them salvation today? Show them that they are a wicked sinner and that they are bound towards hell. When Adam fell, we all fell. And so, Father, I pray that you would just grant them salvation, help them to trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And we wait for the day where your son will split the sky and come back for us all that are in Christ. In his name we pray it, amen.